If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Hi, and welcome back to Estate Sale. I'm Brad Rayley. Lori took the week off for vacation, so she is gallivanting around, social distance style, and showing very poor judgment in leaving the podcast to me for this week. She won't make that mistake again. But back to our podcast. Our focus is on the failings of various institutions in American life that have led to this particularly dark chapter in American history. We have talked about the failings in church and even history education, and soon Lori will dig into the failings of the media. But I also wanted to use this week to look at the problem of scientific illiteracy, which is also at epidemic levels. People suggesting that masks harm the wearer, for example, or one particular idiot pushing the idea of using disinfectant inside the body. I mean, who would say something that stupid? But beyond this spectacularly stupid, we have common misconceptions with the virus. Understandable in this stressful and traumatic time, but having some scientific knowledge can help alleviate some of those concerns. Since expertise matters, at least on a state sale, I turned to some experts to talk to them about antibodies, immunity, treatment, and even just some basic information about how, how scientists approach these kinds of problems. And lastly, we touch on the anti-science movement and how that fear of evolution has undermined our ability to respond in this time. I first turn to my good friend, Dr. Richard Broughton. Rich is not only my former neighbor and fellow craft brewer, but he is also an evolutionary biologist and the chair of the biology department at the University of Oklahoma. Yeah, we have the capability of, of making antibodies to, to molecules that have never ever occurred on Earth or may never have occurred anywhere. So Rich, uh, what kind of virus is this? Now these things are, are clonal for the, for the most part, except in rare situations where you have recombination, but. Can, can you explain that difference between clonal and uh, the other one you said? Every once in a while you have recombination events where you have two different viruses or two different strains of the same virus and recombine. You know, the cell is making new viruses and packaging them and and so you can get genes from both strains packaged together. And that's what happens when you have these big flu pandemics. It's called a, um, an antigenic shift, but it's due to recombination. Um, and often with the flu, for example, you see, um, you know, it's called the swine flu or the bird flu or something like that. Um, the viruses, the, uh, the influenza viruses that attack pigs and, and birds are pretty similar to the humans. Um, and so you can, get, you can get transfer from either of those uh, species to humans. And then if you get recombination with the human strain, it can create a really bad human strain. Influenza, for example, um, which, which mutates pretty fast. Um, and that's why you need to get a flu shot every year because from one year to the next, it will change. You know, it's even worse with the common cold. 
um, which they don't even try to make vaccines to that because right. it, it mutates so fast. So I've been reading about monoclonal treatments. Yeah, so typically a monoclonal antibody is, is something that's made to a specific antigen. Um, and then, then you grow those up as clones um, in usually in animal cells of some sort. Okay. And then you can, and you can crank out the antibodies and then harvest those. And then use those as a treatment, either for somebody who has, uh, who has just contracted the virus or as a, a way to create antibodies and immunity or at least partial immunity. Yeah. Okay. So it would be, it would be transient and it would only be, uh, you know, the immunity would only last as long as those antibodies are around. The antibodies are proteins. And so if you just pump proteins into somebody, you know, that will have a positive effect. But it, you know, it probably won't last more than a few weeks because the proteins will naturally degrade. Okay, so that leads me to one of the questions why I wanted to ask you about this because I have seen a lot of people, not scientists, I'm talking relatively well-informed people that I follow on Twitter or Facebook or something like that, talk about studies about COVID who have talked about antibodies receding or reducing in, in people after they've survived COVID. And that in their mind is sending up big uh, alarm flags about our ability to respond to, to this virus. But what you're suggesting to me with the, with these antibodies being proteins, is, is that a common occurrence with, with whatever it is that we get or get antibodies for? Yeah. So when, when you get, um, adaptive immunity by being exposed to something, whether it's a vaccine or actually being exposed to the, the virus itself. Um, you mobilize cells that create antibodies. And um, <clears throat> these, are, these are either called B cells or T cells. And that's just based on, you know, the area in the body where they're produced. Their, their job basically is to produce antibodies and they'll produce antibodies that are specific to, you know, the COVID virus. So they'll, they'll react with a certain protein on the surface. Cell lines that are specific to COVID will proliferate. And so you're, you've got, you know, you'll end up with millions of these T cells, say, that are all pumping out antibodies to COVID-19. So the fact that, so, so those T cells are going to, they're not going to be pumping out these antibodies just on a, on a regular basis or B cells. They're not going to be doing this on a regular basis. They're going to do this when they perceive the threat. So, so the idea that antibodies are reduced in people who've had COVID is actually just a natural response to being sick with something. So the way I would interpret that is in any sort of infection and response, um, as long as the virus or, or bacteria are present, the specific line of cells that's making antibodies to it are, are going to continue to be, you know, they're going to proliferate, multiply, and make lots of antibodies. Once the infection is, is knocked down, you know, those, those cells will tend to subside and your antibody counts will go down over a period of weeks or potentially months. Um, and so that's what happens in any sort of 
any sort of infection. You know, this, this sort of immunity comes in where there's a certain set of those B cells or T cells that are called memory B cells or memory T cells that essentially they go into a dormant state. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of them. Once you've, once you've been exposed, you've got a lot of these cells and they're just basically going dormant. And if you're ever exposed again, they can rapidly mobilize hmm. and attack the, you know, the invader the virus. And so that's what confers the immunity. And so the fact that you see, you know, antibody levels going down in, in people that have already had it is not too surprising hmm. um, to me because that's kind of what you would expect in a normal um, course of, you know, disease and, and immune response. But, Every study I've seen on this has said, uh, they talk about antibodies going down and almost every one of them will say this study did not measure or look at T cells. So they were just looking at the antibody levels, not the, the actual cells. Right. That's the way it is with virtually every virus we know. Okay. Uh, just out of curiosity. So measles, um, something that most of us get vaccinated for or have it. And, and, and if we have it, we supposedly have, pretty extended immunity after that. Essentially, after surviving measles or having gotten the shot, that's exactly what happens. We have these dormant T cells or B cells that are waiting in. And so all of us, if we were exposed to the measles um, with that immunity, then those cells would jump into action and, and create antibodies, right? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's exactly right. This idea of cross immunity, is that, is that a thing? Is that something I just made up or is that actually a, the, the similarities in the virus that some people might have experienced a different coronavirus that has at least some similarities with this coronavirus that they might actually. Yeah, there can little? be, there can be some cross reactivity. Um, and so, it, so if you've been exposed or vaccinated for another coronavirus, there, there may be uh, some response that would kick in from that. Um, it wouldn't be quite as effective. Right. Um, but that does mean that if you catch a cold and, you know, you, you work it through your system and it's out of your system and you run into somebody in that same kind of population, you're probably not going to, you're going to have some short-term immunity to that particular variant of that cold for a little bit until it mutates to the point that it's yeah. so different. But you'll have immunity to that, you know, strain of the cold, you know, you know, for life, essentially. Um, and if you're exposed to that strain again, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't get a, a bad cold. But, you know, there's something like 180 or 190 different variants circulating out there. If you were lucky and <laughs> or, or unlucky enough to get to get sick from every one of those strains, then, you know, maybe that would protect <laughs> you're you golden. for a while until it mutates again. Um, and so the flu virus, the, 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 what we normally deal with uh, on an annual basis is, is mutating, uh, obviously enough that we have to have a new vaccine every year and it's a moving target. So they're making an educated guess, uh, uh, earlier than this, I'm guessing like in the spring for what's going to be the next winter's, uh, variant. Yeah. And they're producing a, a, a vaccine for that, hoping that they're going to catch. Yeah. They're already season. making the vaccine for this year's flu season. Right. So it, it mutates, but not as quickly as the common cold. 
Right. And it's always a sort of a, a game of prediction that, that we don't know what strain is going to emerge in, you know, in any particular year when flu season rolls around, but we can, you know, use what was common the previous year, actually using phylogenetic methods, you can, you can kind of predict where these things might go. One of the ideas, I guess, is related to what you just said about cross immunity to a certain degree is that even on those years where they miss badly with their estimations on where the flu virus is going to mutate, what I have heard is that even getting the flu vaccine, you're still going to get some, at least hopefully, you're going to get some kind of resistance. Uh, so it may lessen the symptoms or severity of the of the disease. Yeah, in, in general, that's true. So the typical year-to-year evolution of the virus is called antigenic drift. And, you know, it's, it's typically not huge changes, but there's, a, you know, there's always a little bit of change over time. And then, then about every 20 years or so, you get an outbreak where you've got one of these massive recombination events. Those are, are called antigenic shifts. And that's where you get actual recombination. So in, in a certain way, even though they aren't referred to as a novel virus, they function similar to an actual brand new virus. Yeah, I don't know. I or would you call it a influenza, but it, I would call it a novel virus. So to uh, pull this all back together, by the way, uh, in our conversation, Rich, um, I asked him about HIV, and he said that those T-cells that we just learned about that in terms of providing immunity for um, viruses, um, in HIV, the virus actually attacks and targets the T-cells, which is why that virus is so insidious, and we have been reduced to treatment rather than a vaccine. For my next scientific expert, I turned to another friend from the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Doug Mock not only made me laugh in yoga class, but was, before he retired, a behavioral ecology expert in the biology department at OU, where he taught, among others, animal behavior, a class many conservative Christians took in a failed effort to avoid evolution. I began asking him about science in the pandemic, where we see this process uh, occurring in real time. Can you speak a little bit to how scientists who are studying things like uh, here we are seven months into into the pandemic and you know we're still having different opinions, different arguments about how um, communicable it is, how it's communicated, all that stuff and I'm, and I'm struck by the difficulty of actually constructing an experiment and testing this in a situation where you have a potentially fatal, fatal disease. So it's not like you can just give it to a bunch of people and say, hey, let's see right. how this happens. So yeah. how, can, you, can you speak to that? Is that? Big, big Tobacco um, played that angle for decades that uh, you know, there was no, quote, no scientific proof that tobacco smoking causes cancer in humans. And that's a very carefully worded statement because no scientific proof, the word proof is going to require experimental results in humans means you can't do the experiment. So they did the experiment lots and lots of times with rodents. Uh, you know, you put rodents, caged rodents in an environment where you control the amount of smoke in the air that they have to breathe, and you can get lung cancer uh, in a hurry, but um, that's not proving that it exists, that it causes lung cancer in humans. And that's, that's what's happening. The other thing is that, remember, this is called the novel coronavirus. 
Right. Which means that seven months ago, uh, it wasn't available for study. So the entire world's literature on this virus is just, you know, wet on the, on the page, basically. Right. And so people are trying to study from as many ways as they possibly can now. And they get, you know, preliminary uh, evidence, preliminary results from things that you can do with rodents and, and other model systems. But um, it's, it's small sample size, inconclusive results and so forth. So it all seems very wishy-washy during the early stages. In fact, right. it can be wishy-washy for decades. Right. Uh, because science is a slow, very deliberative, very methodical process. And the way that it works, of course, is that scientists um, are human. And so we're, we're full of all the, the insecurities and, and um, uh, jealousies uh, that other humans have. And so when I make a big statement that, you know, the world works this way, then 65 labs around the world leap into action saying, let's, let's kick his butt. Right. And, and if they fail to kick my butt, then I look pretty good. Yeah. Can I ask you though about, cause that's in, interesting to me. So you're talking about proof. You're really talking about it in a controlled uh, environment an, an environment where you can control almost as many variables as you possibly can. All uh, but one. You know, the, right. All but one variable is what you are trying to control. You okay. want only only tobacco smoke to be the only variable that is not identical between these treatments. Gotcha. Okay. So what do we call, um, I know in the 19th century, most science was actually inferential. I mean, you, you yep. just inferred from your observations and, and, and I know you can speak to this. And I remember in environmental history talking about all sorts of examples where scientists may came to the exact wrong conclusion because yep. they were observing the world but not understanding some of the broader context. What do you call it then when, when you are trying to, as a scientist, as virologists are trying to do right now, to try to, because I understand they can only do limited tests with, with rodents and other things in lab form, but they are trying to study in real life, not by putting people at risk, but by observing, sure. by pulling in data from confirmed cases, uh, contact tracing, and then maybe modeling elements of that, like how, how viruses might circulate inside a restaurant, inside the uh, heat and air system, that kind of thing. Can, can you okay. speak to that kind of experimentation sure. or study? Two, two big categories, experimental being the ne plus ultra uh, of science, and, um, and that's double-blind uh, experimental manipulations, blah, blah, blah. But the other broad category is called observational science or correlational. So there you do not have control over the system. You simply are looking for associations, for patterns within the data, and which, which of the competing explanations, the alternative hypotheses, which of these is most consistent with the uh, evidence that we can get without experimentation. So a lot of science is done observationally or through correlation. And then uh, when you get the question really well-defined, uh, and assuming that it's not having to do with human death and, and other ethical constraints, then the idea is as soon as you can, you try to get it into an experimental framework. And ideally, I think there should be an experimental framework under field conditions as opposed to under lab conditions. Okay. So in, in, that, in that observational science, by the way, I, I'm just mm -hmm. sort of drawing from the language you've used you don't use at the end of that um, uh, or at the, at the conclusion of that study, you don't talk about proof. 
Yeah. No. Well, that experimental experimental science is only about ninety years old. So the idea of the idea of taking two groups that are sampled in such a way as to be identical to each other, and you manipulate what you think is the, the causal variable, you manipulate it in this sample, and you have a fake or sham manipulation over here. Gotcha. You, you do everything exactly the same, except this one gets the fertilizer, and this one just gets the solvent, the, the water that the fertilizer was dissolved in. Gotcha. Then you look to see tomato plants, uh, how does the growth performance come out uh, in these two different groups? So that that is used as the term. The term proof is usually associated with the results from that kind of a study, where you're pretty goddamn sure that it was the the thing you're calling fertilizer gotcha. that went in that makes the difference. Gotcha. Yeah. But in in terms of your conclusions for observational, it's more um, this this is uh, convincing. This is. Yes. I mean, in, in some ways, yeah. this reminds me of the way historians work. I mean, historians don't operate in a lab, so, you know, we're, we're reading data and everything else, and, and knowing that our interpretation of the data is always open to, to, to new information, new conclusions, new methodology, new yeah. um, perspective. And, and perspective. usually these cases are built out of piecemeal, uh, uh, you know, some observational, some experimental. So right. DDT eggshell thinning, for example, right they uh, were able to go back to old egg collections and show that the shells were thicker within a species right up until 1945 when broadcast of DDT, and then they thinned dramatically right after that. And when you do that with experimental birds in the lab, you get exactly that same result. And sometimes eggs being, being laid without shells with only mm -hmm. the membranes around them. And then when you uh, take the DDT out of the captive bird's diets, their shells thicken again. Hmm. So that's, that's an experimental demonstration of something that was taken from the correlational. In our discussions on this podcast, I have often asked the question of, how did we get here? Dr. Mock is currently working on a book on the history of the anti-evolution movement, which he traces back to Copernicus and then up to Darwin. But along the way, he noted that the discovery of the germ theory has tripled human life expectancy in just the last 200 years. No one, he notes, wants to go back to before that germ theory. But in the 20th century, conservative Christians saw Darwin as a threat to their worldview. It is really after the Scopes trial in 1925 that we start to see the direct threat to scientific literacy, something we have not conquered yet. And so from 1925, when it could have been stopped right there in its tracks, until 1968, when I'm already in college learning uh, evolutionary biology, uh, American uh, textbook market was left pretty much at the, at the will of free market forces and particularly the Texas school board. And the Texas market is too big for the publishers to let right. go. Right. And you don't have different versions for different states. So everything has to be dumbed down to the level of Texas. Overnight, the textbooks in America were scrubbed clean. The 1925 edition of the most popular textbook in the US, the book from which John Scopes is convicted of having taught, has a nice page or so of explaining Darwin's theory of evolution. And the 1926 edition of that same book, oh, the 25 edition has a picture of Charles Darwin as the cover art. The famous photograph of him as an old man looking like a ghost. 
1926 edition of that same book has the human digestive system diagram. And, you know, biology went through a long, dark 43 years there of where it became a complete memorization course of just memorize all these freaking body parts and, you know, uh, just memorize, memorize, memorize plants, memorize animals, memorize birds, memorize dinosaurs, memorize, uh, you know, enzymes, digestive enzymes. And so biology suffered the same fate as your field of history suffered, which is that it was too hot to handle politically. And so it was turned into a boring memorization course where all the fun stuff, all the foment was taken out of it. What happened at the research level in the United States in terms of the use of biology or evolutionary biology in studying, it didn't happen or? No, it happened wonderfully. It was very active. Field of evolutionary biology is off and running and doing wonderfully well. The American public never gets the word from the professoriate. And then I'd start teaching evolution and I would say, um, you know, changes in gene frequencies over time. That's what evolution is. And somebody would say, no, that's not what evolution is. And I said, oh, trust me on this. You know, this, this really is what evolution is. Just hear me out. And I would explain to them about natural selection. And they would say, well, that all makes a whole lot of sense. Comically easy to convert Oklahoma fundamentalists into evolutionary thinking because it makes so much sense. And they would get into it, and they would be thinking about it. And they say, you know, I'm not going to try to tell you what to think or what to believe in about, about afterlife or about uh, right. supernaturalism, because that's not science. Science is three things. It is theory, it is empiricism, and it is the assumption of naturalism. So let's see if we can sum up this episode. Dr. Broughton explained the difference between the coronavirus and other viruses we battle or have battled. He also explained how our immune system responds to these kinds of attacks and clarifies some public uncertainty about immunity, mostly that the memory T cells are far more important than levels of antibodies in recovered patients. Dr. Mock explained, in pretty broad strokes, the difference between experimental science, where we might prove a, a hypothesis, versus observational science, where we see correlations. He also connected how those different approaches work hand-in-glove in many instances. He then explained how Christian conservatives have undermined science education from the Scopes trial forward, leading to a public that has very little understanding of evolutionary biology. We, we see the results of, in front of us, with anti-mask advocates shouting in the face of store clerks and the aforementioned idiots suggesting that testing is the reason we have more cases. Oh, and while not included in the interviews, both urged all of us to wear masks and not harm those around us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Estate Sale. It's time for Estate Sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.